Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am your host, Reza Aslan. And I'm your secondary host, Rain Wilson. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Rain, this is somewhat of a sad, sad day for us. It's kind of a sad day. It's a little bit of a sad episode. A little bit of a sad episode. Yeah. 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 Do you want to tell the listeners what's going on? Well, folks... After nearly 100 episodes of Metaphysical Milkshake, after we have tackled some of life's biggest questions, what happens when we die? You know, how many universes are there? How does the world come to an end? It's time for us to hang up our metaphysical hats. Is that a thing? I mean, I'm not wearing a hat. Well, we want to hang up our metaphysical hats For now, this has been a really amazing ride with a lot of episodes, but we might be back. We might put our metaphysical hats back on again. It's just for, we're in a kind of indefinite hiatus here, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like us back, you can write us at metaphysical at cast.com with this cast with a K. Hit us up on the social media. Or if you don't want us back, you could also. Please. No, we've, uh, we've, we've created a great number of incredible uh, conversations, and we just need a little break. We, we just both need a little us break. got need- books coming out. We've TV got shows. Uh, TV shows yeah. we're working on. So we just needed a little, a little rest, but I truly hope that we can revisit the metaphysical uh, milkshakers um, at some point in the next year. Which, of course, begs the question, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do with the, for this last uh, this show? Did you book a guest? Well, I didn't book a guest because I thought that you and I, I mean, the last thing we want to do, the last thing we should do is any kind of like self-promotion uh, or anything like that. I mean, we should just ooh. talk about the episodes, our favorite yeah. ones, what moved us, what ideas um, um, kind of That's one thing sprung. we could do. We, I suppose we could... What's that? I suppose. Ooh, it's a pretty purple. What's that pretty other, purple book? Th- this book that I'm holding up uh, to our yeah. YouTube audience. Oh, it, it just. Where did this come from? What the? I I did not expect this. Uh, this happens to be a book called "An American Martyr in Persia: The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville." And let me see, who is the author? Oh, <laughs> what? Would you look at that? It's me. It, Wait, this. Wait, I got one too. This got sent to me in the mail. What the? Now that is a coincidence. I feel like as two fairly spiritual people, we should see this as a sign 
from the heavens that maybe uh, we should do a little self-promotion. Well, now, now, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Just as by way of the beginning of this discussion, who was Howard Bask- Baskerville, just in a nutshell? Well, it's funny you should ask. Howard Baskerville was a 22-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska, of all places, North Platte, Nebraska, who in 1907, it's a long time ago, traveled from Nebraska to Persia, what we now Mm. call Iran, in order to teach English and history and preach the gospel, showed up at a kind of an auspicious time, showed up in the middle of what uh, history now knows as the Persian Constitutional Revolution, the very first democratic revolution in the Middle East. And after about a year and a half of, you know, putting his head down and trying to ignore things and teach his classes and preach the word of God, uh, he ultimately gave up his teaching position, gave up his missionary position, gave up his American citizenship reconstituted his students into a militia and fought alongside them in that revolution against the tyrannical Shah uh, and ended up dying a a heroic death, a martyr's death. He is truly considered a martyr in Iran, an American martyr. And this is the first biography ever written about him. Thanks for asking. So a couple of things. So this Howard Baskerville, he was really selfless, right? Well, well I mean, he was look, filled with he was filled with idealism and had a pure heart. He was definitely filled with idealism. So one of the things that I uncovered But he, he so he would not be in favor of us having the conversation about this book right now is <laughs> what think, I'm saying. Ah, right. Howard Baskerville himself is rolling in his grave <sighs> that we are utilizing our last metaphysical milkshake episode in a long while. To plug your stupid book. Okay, counterpoint. Counterpoint. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Iran, this was many, many, many years ago, before the 1979 revolution, everybody knew Howard Baskerville's name. All Iranians knew who Howard Baskerville was, this like heroic American who gave up everything, including his life, in order to fight for Iran's freedom, you know, against a tyrannical Shah. His tomb is still in the city of Tabriz, where where he lived and, and where he died. People used to come from all over the country to visit his tomb and, and to and to pay homage to this American Christian missionary, you know, who came to save souls and instead ended up, you know, fighting alongside the people he was there to to bring salvation to. There's a a, a beautiful golden bust of him in the Constitution Museum. But then after the 1979 revolution, pretty much all memory of Howard Baskerville was wiped. All Iranians collective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, memories. Like, I, if you go to Iran right now and you say Howard Baskerville, no one knows what you're talking about. No one really? knows who Howard wow. Baskerville is. I had actually someone in Iran go to Tabriz, go to the museum, and the docent who was like showing her around the museum including the Baskerville stuff, had no real idea who Howard Baskerville was and like didn't want to but talk about it. But there's still Howard Baskerville stuff in the museum. In yeah, Tabriz. it's still there. It's still the there. Tomb okay. is still there. The bus is still, the paintings are but, still but there. Let me, let, me ask you, let me ask you a larger question because we're a metaphysical show. So Paul, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to give in to the fact that we're having a conversation about your stupid yes. book. Um, Comes out October 11th, available at all bookstores. Okay, all right. Okay, okay. So- I I know you. I've known you for a long time. Let's let's. I want to I want to start with the deepest possible questions. There are a lot more details. I I want to know about his history and what he did and what he didn't do and what was going on. And mm-hmm. you know, a history of Iran in the 20th century is not something that most Americans are very familiar with. But why did you write this book? Why <sighs> would you write a book about an American martyr in Iran who died at age 22? <laughs> He died at 24, yeah. Um, he arrived at 22. Because I know you. You're up to something. I am up you're to always something. Up to, am... You're, you're always poking <laughs> the bee's nest. So what is it about uh, this young Howard Baskerville? Well, look, on the one hand, this is somebody that everyone should know about. I mean, it's it's crazy that this you know incredibly heroic man is somebody that like 99.9% of Americans had never heard of before. And a great Christian too, right? So the Christian Fair, side devout, of our nation. Yeah, would, devout, yeah. evangelical Christian, Protestant missionary. I mean, that's who this, this guy was. So partly it's just to you know make sure people uh, know this person. It's the first biography ever written about him. Uh, partly it's obviously to challenge you know the 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 uh, narrative that we hear so often about America and Iran. Right? These are two countries that have really been at odds for decades now, and there's a lot of conversation about. You know, Iran calls America the great Satan and, you know, America uh, refers to Iran as a terror state, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of anger, a lot of animosity. And yet here's this American who died for Iran. Uh, And so in a way he can act as a sort of bridge, possibly uh, a a way of of reconciling, maybe at the very least coming to some kind of mutual understanding between these two countries. But but you got me. You got me. There is. There is a little alternative goal that I have here. And, you know, partly it has to do, uh, it's actually a, a lot uh, like Zealot, like my book Zealot, you know, which was also about a young, idealistic, religious firebrand who, you know, fought a revolution in the name of the weak and the dispossessed and marginalized and, and attacked. He was Jesus. I'm not saying Baskerville is Jesus, but it's a, it's a theme. But for me... You know, we've if, if we're going to go back on these whatever nearly hundred episodes of metaphysical milkshake that we've had, and we're going to talk about like what is one of the more common themes that has come up uh, in mm-hmm. these episodes, it's been the whole like faith without deeds, right? 
mm-hmm. uh, values without action. Like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that is something that we have repeatedly talked about. Just we have no tolerance for, right? People who spout the things that they believe, but don't actually ever put them into play. And what I really, really admire about this kid, <laughs> this kid, and that's what he was, is that he went to Iran because he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus mm-hmm. was the Lord and Savior. He believed that all people needed to know Jesus, otherwise they would burn in hell. And so And he wanted to convert Mohammedans. That's what he that's what he said. Yeah, I'm going to yep. do the Mohammedan work. That's I'm gonna go and make turn these Muslims into Christians. And he went there and he tried. He tried, you know, he uh, according to all the documents that we have, was very open about his faith, shared it with everyone, shared it with all of his students. And as far as we know, he'd never converted a single person. <laughs> like, not, uh-huh. <laughs> not one. Like, I, I've, I've scoured the historical documents. There's like nobody. Not, I mean, he had his best friend was Persian. Uh, you know, he, uh, one of his favorite students wrote a, a nice little thing about him. Nobody converted. Can I just interject yeah, absolutely. Uh, as, as a Baha'i, because as a member of the Baha'i faith, we oh, yeah. hold a lot of similarities to Islam. You know, in Islam, there's this idea that there are they are people of the book, that Abraham, you know, Moses, some of the other lesser prophets of the Old Testament, and Jesus were all prophets from God. They were all divinely sent. They're all divinely inspired. And so Muhammad, uh, Mohammedans, Muslims, revere and love Jesus Christ. So, oh, yeah. but they view that as just folded naturally into their religion. So they're, it would just almost be silly for them to kind of say, oh wait, now I have to reject Muhammad um, in order to really love Jesus Christ? No, I can love Muhammad and I can love Jesus Christ and I can love Moses and and Abraham yeah. and, 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 and all of the great spiritual teachers. Absolutely. So just FYI. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And I would say one other thing. So there is a real fascinating fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity. And to put it in academic terms, Christianity is what we refer to as an orthodoxic religion. It's all about doctrine and correct belief. And Islam— mm-hmm like Judaism for that matter, is what we refer to as an orthopraxic religion. It's all about the things that you do. So to put it in the simplest terms, to be a Christian means to believe a certain set of things. But Mm -hmm. to be a Muslim or a Jew means that you do a certain set of things, right? Mm -hmm. You have to Mm -hmm. actually act in a certain way. It's the things that you do that make you a Muslim, Whereas it's the things that you believe that make you a Christian. And you could see the conflict here. Here's this kid going around trying to convert these Muslims to Christianity in the middle of a revolution in which these people are fighting for their lives, for their freedoms, in which they are being oppressed and marginalized and, and at the end of this story, literally starved to death. And gunned down. And gunned and down. And, right. and here's this you know, well-meaning kid being like, hey, you know, you should know Jesus because he'll save your soul. And they're like, my soul? (laughs) Like, that's not how this works, man. That's not how religion in Iran works in general, including the Baha'is, but it's certainly not how Islam works. And so what I find most remarkable about Baskerville is here is this kid who very quickly realized, if I'm going to actually really and truly 
walk in Jesus's footsteps. I need to do what Jesus would do right now in the face of such horror and suffering and violence. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So he turned from an orthodoxic to an orthopraxic <laughs> kind of yeah. uh, believer in the midst of this revolution. He put his faith into action. That's what he did. But isn't there also an element of the American Revolution and all this and and how evangelical Christianity has been kind of wedded with the Constitution in a way that yes. he also saw the mirrors of the American Revolution, the parallels. He was referred to as the American Lafayette yeah. in Iran. That's right. And so isn't there kind of like, yes, there's a shift in like, what would Jesus do? Like the bumper sticker, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would try and fight in the cause of, I don't know if Jesus would fight anyone, but he would certainly protest and be a part of the cause of justice. But also that just like people like, got to have my Bible and my constitution, one in each hand, <laughs> yeah. he kind of wanted to, to be a great American revolutionary in Iran. Well, one of the more fascinating things about Baskerville that I uncovered was that he went to Princeton at a time in which uh, Woodrow Wilson was the president of the school. And he arrived in Princeton a few years after uh, Wilson had enacted what we nowadays all commonly refer to as the electives system. You can thank Woodrow Wilson for your college electives. That was basically his innovation. And so although he went to Princeton to study Christian ministry, that's what he was there for. It was all about reading the Bible, uh, you know, scriptural exegesis, like it was Bible, 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 Bible. His junior year, he had to take these electives. And what does he do? He takes two electives with Woodrow Wilson himself, one in constitutionalism and one in jurisprudence. And look, there's a lot to hate about Woodrow Wilson, starting with the fact that he was an despicable, unrepentant racist. I mean, like this man, I mean, I could, I could tell you a lot of stories about how racist Woodrow Wilson was, but let's just start with the fact that when he was president of the United States, he actually premiered Birth of a Nation at the White House. Okay. Yeah. That's, Didn't he also that's fire, uh, forbid all African Americans from working in government jobs, federal he, jobs? Yeah. Yeah. He basically yeah. rid uh, the DC bureaucracy of all black people. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, but despicable but, but in a million is, ways. But this is, uh, we're, so we're doing a little sidebar here. We want to get back to Baskerville in Woodrow Wilson's classes on constitutionalism at Princeton in his electives. That's all great. But this almost could be its own episode of uh, Metaphysical Milkshake. I'm not sure that we're the podcast to cover it, but I'm, <laughs> I was reading about 
you know, so much uh, hullabaloo about removing Wilson's name from Princeton, yeah. from the library, et cetera, et cetera. And because he was such a racist. And at the same time, Wilson created the League of Nations. Dude, I know. And he also believed in, in God-given right of democracy. That That's democracy right. was a God-given human right that people should have a voice and a voice for change in their own country. He helped win the First World War. I mean, yeah, yeah. this yeah. guy, like, I mean, so you want to talk about- and, and this, So this is a giant, this is kind of a national conversation. Like, yeah. as we go back into the history of our founding fathers, we're going to find more and more racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. Even in San Francisco, they tried to tear down a statue of Abraham Lincoln because Lincoln was a bastard to the Native Americans and sentenced <laughs> a bunch of them to death yeah. for fighting in the Indi quote-unquote Indian Wars. They're just trying to save their lands and their families. And so Lincoln was racist against the natives. And so every and everyone pre let's say 1980 <laughs> is 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 going to be is going to inherit a certain measure of racism and sexism yeah. and classism and and what have you this needs to be a national conversation like do we ban them and ban their names i mean it's easy for me to say as a white guy like if i was a black kid at princeton i don't want the name of someone who sure. actively hated black people above a building but at the same time you have to acknowledge a little bit of the good I mean, with the bad. Wilson's family were slave owners. He was a fervent supporter of the Confederate cause long after the Civil War was over. Like, it wow. was already done, and he was still like, yeah. the Confederacy should have won, which is crazy considering that he became president. Uh, he was an avid supporter of the KKK. Like, absolutely thought that they were, like, a jewel of Southern pride, you know? Mm. At, by the time he was president of Princeton, all the other Ivy League schools had started letting black students in. But Wilson was like, nope, not going to do it. Not at Princeton. And then on the flip side of that, this is a man who, you know— is one of the fathers of international law created the 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 precursor to the United Nations um had this incredibly sophisticated global understanding and as you rightly say believed that freedom and democracy were not american ideals they were divine mandates that they that it was sort of god's commandment that all people everywhere had a say in the governments that ruled over them, in the decisions that governed their lives. And he preached this to generations of Princeton kids. Um, and then ultimately, of course, it became sort of the foundation of his presidency. And Baskerville, at what, like 20 years old, was one of those kids just listening to these great orations from soon-to-be president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, about how it is the responsibility of all Americans to make sure that everybody in the world is free, because if everybody in the world is free, then is not free, then no one is free. And this gets into him, right? So it just starts burning this hole into his chest where he's like, okay, my dad is a country preacher. My grandfather is a country preacher. I came to Princeton in order to become a country preacher, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to I'm going to go out into the world. And yes, I'm going to go out into the world and convert the masses. That's what I'm, you know, I'm going to be a missionary. But for him, the sort of 
the divine message that he had and his fervent belief in the political rights of of people were absolutely enmeshed. They were one and the same as far as he was concerned. Amazing. So this 22-year-old kid goes to teach at a, an American school in Tehran? No, Tabriz. Tabriz, yeah. It's a north, uh-huh. northwest uh, of the country. To paint a picture, if you will, I find this fascinating as, as a Baha'i who's, and the roots of our faith is in Persia, in, in Iran, mostly in the 19th century, but um, I find it really fascinating. Uh, there's an incredible... Uh, contradictory, uh, dichotomous history of the shahs in Iran. Because to be a shah is to be a king, right? You're just a divine, but you're, it's like Louis the Fourteenth. It's a divinely appointed <laughs> king that, that, that rules unquestioningly. That is, and oddly enough, and, and maybe you can help explain this to me, the shahs throughout history were always battling with the Muslim clergy. Yeah, even though the shahs were believed to be by everyone divinely appointed and kind of pillars of Islam, there were Islamic divinely appointed kings, yep. and yet they were always in these battles, <laughs> power battles and power grabs with the various kind of clergy members who who hated and resented the shahs. And, and part of the Iranian revolution in 1979 was mm-hmm. the kind of bringing down of the shah you know, which and it, but the the roots of that were two hundred years old with uh, distrust of of the Shah. But Shahs were worshipped, worshipped uh, in the nineteenth century and early twentieth century in Iran. Can you tell us a little bit more about that milieu that Baskerville found himself? Yeah, in? Yeah, this has been a, a fraught relationship for centuries, as you say. You're right. Actually, what's really fascinating is that the the origins of this conflict between the clergy and the Shah starts with this story, with the Persian constitutional revolution that that Howard Baskerville fought in. Because before then, for a while, the clergy just sort of stayed out of politics altogether. You know, they the Shiism is a weird religion. It's messianic. And so they believe that only the Messiah can be the true leader and so all leaders on earth are just either temporary temporary leaders or not real leaders. And so it doesn't matter. Democracy, uh, communism, uh, you know, fascism, uh, a king, like what, it, who cares? Because eventually the world will end, the Messiah will come, he'll create the perfect order, and he's the only person who has the right to actually rule mm-hmm. society. Then, you know, for a little while, they you had a lot of uh, conflicts, as you say, at the end of the of the uh, 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where certain clergy, especially sort of firebrand preachers, were causing some trouble, you know, really questioning the actions of the shahs. And what the shahs did was brilliant, is they just bought them all. They just brought the clergy into the court and gave them all, you know, uh, money and allowances and and great positions. Essentially, shut them up. Land, right? Ma- made land. Yeah, yep. gave them land, gave them wealth. Uh, bought bought their loyalty. Do you know at that time, at the turn of the century, how many thousands of people were in this kind of like governmental court system oh, that had yeah, been created by the Shahs? I mean, it's it, thousands and thousands of thousands. people that were on. This, 
They're on the dole, given land, given titles and positions, kind of pitted one against another. So you had this whole ruling class that was bought off in corruption. In fact, this is this is how the Shahs. It was so ridiculous. Just as like you know, these sycophants and bootlickers, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are being paid off by the court. It was so ridiculous that during this time. If you wanted to be the governor of a province, let's say, you know, in Tabriz, um, the way that you would become governor is you would pay the Shah to become governor. You basically, you you know, people would bid. So the highest bidder would become the governor. And then the way that the governor would make up all the money that he spent in order to become the governor was to like randomly tax the people that he was, uh, you know, supposed to govern and then basically pocket most of that money and send, you know, the remainder off to Tehran and the government. So it was just corruption from the top to the bottom. And then at the start of the 20th century, a group of young, you know, sort of Western educated firebrand revolutionaries and business interests, you know, the merchants, the Bazaari people, a lot of power. And then this kind of new generation of clergy, uh, this clergy who were dedicated to social justice and economic justice and uh, Iranian nationalism banded together and created this revolution that ended up creating a a, a constitution, a, a parliament, and then ultimately, that's the revolution that that uh, Howard Baskerville joined. But what was really fascinating is that that group, the young revolutionary, sort of Western-educated intellectuals, the merchant class, and the clergy, that coalition is the same coalition that in 1979 brought down the last shot. Mm. It's just mm. unfortunately uh, in the post-revolutionary chaos of those three groups – only one of them controlled the streets, and that mm-hmm. was the clergy. And so once the Shah was gone, uh, that's when the Ayatollah Khomeini basically used the chaos uh, that ensued in order to take power for himself. Now, Iran has a long history of kind of blaming imperialist powers in kind of manipulating the puppet strings of the Shah or whomever is in power. Um that started with the Russians, then the British, then the U.S. Now it's kind of Israel, um, but they were. But in a lot of ways, they were right, right? Yeah. Because um, the British controlled the oil, the Russians controlled the what was it, tobacco? I don't, I don't, I don't remember exactly. But yeah, can you rail, tell us tobacco, a little bit about these basically. three, the three big powers, and what they were doing in Iran uh, around the turn of the century and yeah, the first that, half of the century? Uh, it, it's that old adage, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean, you know, people aren't out to get you. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah, it's true that Iranians, you know, love to blame Westerners for all of their ills. Certainly the Iranian government does. But it's also true that Iran has had three democratic revolutions in the 20th century. The Constitutional Revolution of 1905, the National Revolution of 1953, and then the Revolution of 1979. And in all three cases, it was essentially the the uh, uh, involvement of outsiders, Russia uh, and Britain in 1905, uh, the United States and Britain in 1953, and then mostly the United States in 1979, that 
came in and essentially put an end to any hope that these revolutions would actually result in a peaceful, democratic, constitutional state. And so, you know, Iran, Iranians have a point. Iranians, you know, talk about, uh, you know, Israel is behind everything. You know, every every problem that we have in Iran is Israel's fault. And that's obviously ridiculous. That said, Israelis are openly assassinating people on the streets of Tehran, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, you see that and you're like, well then maybe it is their fault that, you know, the economy sucks. Maybe it is their fault that, you know, everything's shit. When was the president of Iran overthrown because he wanted to privatize Iranian oil interests and take yeah. those away from the prime, British yeah, and Americans? Yeah, 1953, the, the prime minister mm-hmm. of Iran, that's exactly right, yeah. Mm-hmm. The prime minister, the, there was a revolution in 53, we kicked the Shah out again, uh, we had a democratically elected prime minister. The first thing that he did was nationalize the oil because at that point, you know, all the oil was going off to the to uh, the British Empire. And uh, as a result, the United States, the CIA, came in and within a couple of months and a suitcase with just $100,000, they managed to remove the government, remove uh, Mossadegh, who was the prime minister from power, and then literally just like pick up the Shah and put him right back on the throne again. Right. You know? So, so when that, that happens back. a few times, you start to, you start to think, well, maybe it's, maybe I'm not paranoid. Maybe people are out right. to get me. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So let's go back to Baskerville. Here, here's this kid. He's in Tabriz. He's teaching. There's revolutionaries all over the place. What happens? What are some bullet points? We don't want to give away the entire book, but what are some bullet points of what happens to him that leads to his eventual martyrdom? Well, it's funny because he did not want to go to Iran at all. He had been, mm. you know, he was he desperately begged to go to either China or Japan because he was hearing all these like missionary reports, right? That coming from China and Japan about how wonderful everything was. China, oh, people are converting en masse and Japan is so beautiful. And then you would read... <laughs> These missionary reports from Iran, and they were horrifying. They're like, this is the worst place on earth. These people are the worst. Every sin imaginable is present amongst them. You know, they are inveterate liars. Uh, Mohammedanism is is a wall that cannot be broken. So the last place he wants to go to is Iran. And of course, that's where he gets assigned. So, you know, he goes, that's what you, you know, Jesus wants you in Iran, that's where you go. And he goes there 
at, you know, really expecting the worst and almost immediately falls in love, falls in love with the country, becomes deeply close friends with this amazing character named Hassan Sharif Sadeh, who basically is like, you know, he's one of the great orators of um, the revolution. And they both are teaching at the same school. He falls in love, like literally falls in love with the daughter of the headmaster uh, of this, of the school. Um, You know, he gorges himself on Persian food because like, you know, he's never had anything. This guy's been eating like food from Nebraska and yeah. he shows up and yeah. he's like, what the fuck? This is the best food I've ever had in my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sabze, Fess and June. Yeah, exactly. He's got that tadig. And, and then on top of all of that, here he is living through, like literally in front of him, something that he had only read about in history books, something that he only talked about in Woodrow Wilson's classes. He's literally watching a democracy arise in front of his eyes. You know, uh, a constitution is written and and uh, and uh, passed. Uh, a parliament is, is created and there are free and fair elections. There are these like amazing conversations being had in coffee <clears throat> shops about like, what kind of country are we going to be? Are we going to be, you know, a, a confederation? or a republic uh you know there are these conversations about how to how to properly spend tax revenue it's like he is living inside of a history book you know it needs to be said too that this is not just a revolution this is like the first revolution in the muslim world and the first place in the muslim world where this this idea was talk about revolutionary the idea that people have rights that peasants, that workers, that business owners have rights, they should be heard, that their voices should be heard, you know, in the halls of government. It's crazy. Is like mind-blowing because we're still crazy got talk. a Louis XIV yeah, exactly. uh, kind of mentality around the Sun King Shaw being supported by all these uh, bootlicker uh, clergy. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, it's insane. The, the Constitution literally says that the Shah has his position by the will of the people. And the mm. will of the people can remove him from that position. This was insane talk. Like, that's that's crazy talk. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. The Shah mm-hmm. was put on his throne because God put him on that throne. And mm-hmm. only God mm-hmm. can remove him from the throne. So the very idea that that's something that people have the power to do you know, was unheard of at the time. People talk a lot mm-hmm. about the Young Turk Revolution, but the Young Turk Revolution was influenced by the Persian Revolution. It was the Persian mm-hmm. Revolution that then, you know, started getting all this attention in uh, in Turkey or in the Ottoman Empire, I should say. And all these Young Turks were like, hey, we want that too, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was an unbelievable moment um, of of hope and inspiration. And and here's this 22-year-old kid who just finished hearing for an entire year Woodrow Wilson saying, God's will is for all people everywhere to be free. Democracy is a gift from the heavens, and it will uh, eventually uh, spread throughout the entire world. And and now he's like dropped in the middle of exactly what Woodrow mm. Wilson was talking about. It's happening in front of him. And yet he is constantly being told by the church, mind your own damn business. Yeah. It is not your business. It's not your problem. 
by the way, at the time, the State Department under President Taft was like, oh, this is nonsense. There's no such thing as democracy in a Muslim world. That's, that doesn't work. Like, that's not a real thing. So mm. absolutely, we cannot support this, this revolution. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, no American you know, can support this revolution. So he's got both the U.S. government and his church telling him, none of your business, look the other way. And for a mm-hmm. year and a half, he does that. I mean, he, it's hard, but he does it until he just can't anymore. And what does he do? Does he pick up guns? What does he does he help organize? What what is the what's the juice of what he was actually rolling up his sleeves and doing there? So to back up a little bit, the Constitution is signed by uh, Muzaffar ad-Din Shah. A, a parliament is opened. There's elections. Iran is now a constitutional monarchy, the first constitutional monarchy in the history of the Middle East. It's a it's an amazing moment. And then that Shah dies, and his son becomes the next Shah. This 35 year old kid named Muhammad Ali becomes the next Shah, and not that Muhammad Ali. And he is very unhappy with his father and what his father had done. And he's like, this is nonsense. The Constitution is bullshit. Parliament, I mean, this this whole thing is ridiculous. And so with the help of his Russian backers, he tears up the Constitution. He rolls cannons to the parliament building and he blows it up with the parliamentarians still inside. And then and then he declares war on the revolution, manages to recapture the entire country of Iran, every city, every province, every town except Tabriz. (laughs) The one town that Baskerville uh, lives in becomes essentially the last bastion of the revolution. And by 1909, the Shah, after trying repeatedly to take Tabriz by force and failing, uh, gives up and says, you know what? All right, if I can't defeat you, I'm just going to starve you to death. And he besieges the entire city, cuts off all food, all water, and the population in this very gruesome, gruesome uh, moment in Iranian history dies, slowly dies. Uh, Women, children, men, corpses on the street. Just, it is horrific. Mm. And once again, the church, the Presbyterian church that sent Baskerville there is saying, this is terrible. It's an awful situation. Our hearts are breaking, but it's none of your business. It's none of your business. You're here Mm. to save souls, not lives. Okay? Mm. So if you want to do good, go and preach the gospel. That's how you can do good. And he just can't do it anymore. And so there's this very, you know, dramatic moment where he stands in front of his students, you know, in, in the morning. He's there. He's supposed to teach the class. And he just says, he literally says, I can't do this anymore. I cannot continue to teach you while on the other side of this wall, on the other side of this window, there are women and children dying on the streets. I can't do that this anymore. And so he says, I can't, I'm going to give up my teaching position and I'm going to actually go pick up a rifle and join the revolution. And here's the crazy shit. This is the, this is the stuff that like you see it like in Hollywood movies and you're like, come on, come on. He gives this speech to his students and the students join him. The students stand up, they walk out of school with him and they also join 
the revolution. So he's like this kind of demented Pied Piper, like taking wow. these kids out of this this you know school that he's supposed to be teaching, and instead he reformulates his students into this militia. They call themselves the Army of Salvation. They pick up guns and they fight against the Shah's troops. And ultimately, in April of 1909, uh, this group, Baskerville, this like 24-year-old Christian missionary who's like had no military uh, you know, uh, training whatsoever. He literally like learned everything he knows about the military because he borrowed some Encyclopedia Britannicas. And, <laughs> and his band of teenagers decide that they're going to break the siege, that, you know, there's no more food in the city. There's nothing more to do. Someone's got to break through the siege, go and get food. So he and his students on the morning of April 20th uh, volunteer for that job. And it's in the process of trying to break the siege that he gets shot in the heart and dies. Amazing. And, and it ultimately does become successful, though? Well, so this is the crazy thing, is that the backlash from the siege and from Baskerville's death. I mean, thousands of people came to his funeral uh, mm. in Tabriz. And the, and the international attention, this whole debacle is starting to get, starts to become too much. And so the Russians and the British, who were really the, the only people who could control the Shah, basically give him an ultimatum, either declare a ceasefire so that we could bring food uh, and humanitarian assistance into Tabriz, or we're going to invade. We're literally going to invade your country and remove you from power. So which one do you want? And which is ironic because these are the two powers that were basically like spurring him on, you know, to right. do exactly what he was doing. But, you know, international embarrassment was just too much. So the Shah has no choice but to declare a ceasefire. And the day after Baskerville's death, the siege is lifted, food is brought into Tabriz, but then the revolutionaries use the ceasefire to reconstitute, regroup, march onto Tehran, where they force the Shah off the throne, send him off into exile, replace him with his like 12-year-old son, and then rewrite the constitution, rebuild the parliament, have brand new elections, and the very, very first act, the first legislative act of the new parliament is to declare Howard Baskerville a hero and a martyr of of the revolution. You know, it's crazy. Like that was okay, you know, a hundred and something years ago. You think back now, today, you know, 2022, is that where we're in? 2022? Yeah. Yep, yep. To think that like there's a there's a Christian American Christian evangelical missionary <laughs> in Iran whose tomb is a pilgrimage site, right? Mm. Whose bust is in a museum, displayed in a museum, who until the 79 revolution had elementary schools named after him, right? Mm -hmm. And who was considered this like hero in Iran, it would be crazy. It'd be crazy to think that about someone yeah. like that. And yet that's who it was. And so, you know, going back to what you were saying before, that's my goal as to make sure that both Iranians and Americans remember this kid because he's pretty much been lost to history. Incredible story. Absolutely astonishing story. I remember you told me years ago about this guy and how you wanted to write a book about him and how this should be a movie, Timothy Chalamet. But going back to the big ideas here behind this book, <laughs> I love the idea of 
a martyr because in the Baha'i faith, martyrs hold a big place because tens of thousands of Baha'is, early Baha'is and Babis, which preceded Baha'is, gave their lives for, for their faith. And instead of recanting their faith, they were tortured, shot out of cannons, yep. had candles stuck into their bodies, and they were burned in the streets, bastinadoed, you name it. The, the idea of martyrdom is kind of lost in the modern world, but what a perfect example of a martyr. This is guys like, let's do this, organizes a militia, they march, he, you know, he gets shot, unfortunately, yeah. but his dying hits the newspapers. All of a sudden, the English and Russians are like, oh my God, changes everything. He gave his life uh, to alleviate the suffering of the starving of Tabriz yeah. and to bring uh, a constitution to the poor people of Iran. But this is... So tell us your feelings about what martyrdom is and what yeah, it means and yeah. why that 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 word is so powerful in this in this book. By the way, I'm really glad that you brought up the Baha'is cuz they they were pivotal in the Persian constitutional revolution and the Bab was actually executed in Tabriz, you know? Mm. I mean, yeah. it, that that was the site of his uh execution and and that will tell you a lot about how Iran works because it was truly the execution of the Bab that allowed for the flowering of Baha'ism in so many ways. The fact that this guy who had these incredible ideas, um, he had amazing spiritual ideas, but he had you know, these amazing ideas about the freedom of the press, which is something that yeah. the Bab talked about. Equality he, of women and men. Equality of women. Yeah, yeah. Which like no one, no one was talking about the equality of women, you know. Abolishing clergy, not needing clergy, not needing you clergy. Know? Uh, actually, science the, and religion being in harmony. That's right. You know, the, this is the, revolutionary concepts in the 1840s. And and by the way, the first person in Iran to come up with the concept of a house of justice, which is what the parliament was, he was the first to say we need we need a place where citizens can go to where the law mm -hmm. is written down. And you could actually have, you know, access to a, a process whereby, hmm. you know, you can be judged fairly by the law. People were like, judged fairly by the law? The law is whatever the Shah says the law is. And hmm. Hmm. this is a man who was willing to die for those ideas at a time in which those ideas and his followers were not that huge, uh, were in which, you know— it, it, he didn't. He he couldn't look ahead and know that like this was going to flower into one of the most beautiful global religions, you know, in, in the world. But he was willing to die for it. And fundamentally, mm. I think that's the question that really animated me about this book. And it's the question at the heart of martyrdom, which is, what are you willing to die for? Like yeah. it's a crazy idea, right? And theoretically. We could come up with a million, uh, you know, answers to that question, right? From the comfort of our living rooms, I can tell you a whole host of things that I would be willing to die for, <laughs> but then put me in that position <laughs> and, and then ask me again, like, what are you willing to die for? In Shiism and in Christianity, martyrdom is very huge. The idea that Jesus sacrificed himself. The, in mm. Islam, you know, the idea that like the um, Imam Hussein, you know, was able to sacrifice himself. Martyrdom, the idea that you would lay down your life for a just cause is 
in many ways, the very core of Islam and certainly the core of Shia Islam, which is what most uh, Iranians are. And for Baskerville to come into this situation as an outsider and to say, I have these set of beliefs, both political and religious, political in the sense that all people deserve to be free, religious in the sense that human dignity, human lives matter, and they, they need to be protected. And for him to say, I'm willing to die for that, because you know, I, I made it sound very heroic. He and his band of students, you know, were, were going to break through the siege. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was a suicide mission. It was him and 11 students. It was a dumb, dumb idea, but it was born out of desperation. People are dying. I have to do something. And so you can say with a very clear conscience that he went into that action knowing that very likely he was not coming back from it. And that is the thing that made him the hero in Iran. It's not about what you do or what you say or even who you are and certainly not what you believe. It's about what are you willing to die for? And part of the reason why I think he has become such a hero is that that question has always been very important in Iran, whether you're an Iranian Christian or an Iranian Jew or an Iranian Baha'i or an Iranian Muslim. There's the, the Persian culture is all about this notion of sacrifice. What are you willing to die for? That's, that's the most important question. Um, and will you actually do it? Will you put yourself out there? And so to me, that's the core of what martyrdom is. Right? This idea that I have a set of beliefs, a set of values, and I am going to put those values into action, but I am also going to willingly, if necessary, die for those values. It's just, we don't really see yeah. that that much anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's just so not, a, not a thing anymore. Peter Singer, who we had on the show, uh, gave a very famous TED Talk um, we might have referenced it in our conversation with him. I can't remember if it made the edit, um, where he showed footage in China of a girl who had been hit by a car laying in the street and people were driving past the dead body for like 20 minutes or half an hour before someone like stopped and said, hey, we need an ambulance and what's going on here? People just ignored the body, right? And then he drew the parallel to like, well, wait a second. We're doing this every day. We know that people are, we know that in Pakistan, right. there's thousands of people starving right now, right now from the floods. Like we know in the Sudan and in Ethiopia, there's war in Sri Lanka that people are dying and starving. And yes, and people are, were outraged that people were driving by this dead body, but aren't we driving by dead bodies every single day? So when you think about martyrdom, like, most people would say like, well, I would die for my family. I would die for my wife. I would die for my child. If someone was threatening them, I would throw my life and I'd, okay, fair enough. That's, that's great. That's great. And then it's like, well, maybe I would die for my neighbor. If I saw someone, my neighbors right. or extended family, like this, but, but, but then how wide do we make that circle? Do you know what I mean? How big do we, because this is what he did essentially was his circle went from uh, his family 
to people in Nebraska and South Dakota. Then his circle went to evangelical Christians or Princeton grads. And all of a sudden his circle went to humanity. Muslim women and children of Tabriz are then my family. I'm willing to die for, for them. So in a way, my point is like, how do we and, and, and answer this question, I'll ask you this question. How do we expand that circle of what we are willing to sacrifice our lives for? Yeah, I think fundamentally that is the question of the book. It's like literally a question that I ask, you know, at the end of it. Baskerville died for strangers. You know, these were not his people, as you say. Like it wasn't that in they weren't Americans, they weren't Christians, you know, they they were people that he didn't know, you know, but they were suffering and he felt like he needed to. And you're right, as Peter Singer reminded us, yeah, people are suffering right now everywhere and you mm-hmm. can do something about it. So why aren't you? And I guess at a time in which, you know, we've become less and less globally aware, I think that's probably true right now, we're becoming more insulated, less concerned about what's happening around the world. There are thousands of people who are dying in, in Pakistan because of you know, uh, the, the flooding. There are millions of people all over the world whose lives are at, at risk because of climate change uh, or because of abject poverty or hunger. There are people around the world who are in need of someone to help them. And we, I think, have become less and less interested in those people, not more. Even this idea that Baskerville went to some foreign strange land 10,000 miles away, it took him two and a half months to get there because he thought that they were deserving of freedom and democracy. Like, we're not even all that into democracy here in America anymore, right? It's like half of us are like, here's, here's what I love. No one has to ever lose an election again. Yes, exactly. We, we never yeah. lose elections. No one ever will lose an election. I, I tweeted that it's like a participation trophy. No one loses. Like, no one loses. Anyone yeah. who lo- a quote unquote loses an election had it stolen and it was robbed. That's right. That's right. So That's no one ever has to lose. Now. Everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. That's how we think here, let alone the idea of like promoting democracy in another country. Are you nuts? Mm -hmm. Like that's not, Mm -hmm. we could barely promote that here. And so in some ways you look at Baskerville's actions and and he comes off as maybe a little naive, a little foolish, you know, Uh, it's, he's easy to, he's easy to dismiss and make fun of. There's no question about it. You know, this white Christian privileged kid who went to some dark and foreign land in order to, you know, bring salvation uh, and then had this awakening and really kind of ended up being saved himself in a a lot of ways uh, because of Mm -hmm. that awakening and and these actions. So I really want this book to be a challenge to the people Mm. who read it. I want them and that's to what read I was getting. That's what I was yeah. getting at at the very beginning. And I know that you don't write anything unless <laughs> you are poking the beehive, unless you are issuing I'm a challenge. That beehive to, but it's a challenge both for Christian Americans and it is a challenge for Muslim Iranians at the same time. It's a challenge for everyone. It's a challenge for Christians, especially in America, not Baha'is, who, not Baha'is, who have gotten to this place where Christianity means nothing more than you know. Uh, 
political power and, you know, uh, forcing Christian ideas and values uh, upon the the United States. I mean, Christians in the Trump years have gotten a very bad rap and deservedly so. And here's a Christian who says, no, being a Christian doesn't mean, you know, forcing this or that on someone. Being a Christian means acting like Jesus and dying for strangers. That's what being a Christian means. But isn't this this a little bit scary? Isn't this a little bit scary that a a Christian— in, in MAGA America could read this and go, I am going to die for Trump. <laughs> well, I am going to die for those evil liberals <laughs> that are tearing our democracy apart. And because a lot of them are willing to die, they're willing to sacrifice their lives to protect America from liberal scum that they believe by, you know, uh, I think about 60% uh, are <sighs> evil for our country. Possibly. I think a lot mm-hmm. of them are willing to kill for it. Uh, Far, far fewer are willing to die for it. But nevertheless, it comes back to that question, what are you willing to die for? And by the way, this is an American too. This, I mean, he gave up his citizenship at the end of his life because he had to. I mean, he he was literally being threatened with treason. He was told, you will be arrested for treason if you fight Mm. in this war. And he was like, okay, well then I guess I'm not American anymore. And he handed his passport Mm. in. But- Mm unquestionably, he was doing this as an American. He believed that this is what an American would do, that like the idea that democracy is something just for America is fucking offensive. Like, of Mm. course it's not. And so this is me acting like a Christian. This is me acting like an American. And so I think, you know, it's something for a lot of us Americans right now to start thinking about too. What do we owe other people in the world? What do we owe their freedom I want to say something on that, on this word martyr, because I think there's an idea like we don't, martyrdom doesn't necessarily mean giving your life and and being shot to death. That martyrdom can mean giving up your comfort, your freedom, your status, your time to help others. There is a martyrdom, uh, a healthy martyrdom in, in service to others. Um, so we don't have to think of martyrdom as like, absolutely. what, what am I, am I going to be bayoneted or garroted or brought up in front of a firing squad? But actually it's like working in selfless service is a kind of, That's right. uh, a different kind of martyrdom. That's right. It was any kind of like voluntary suffering. It could be economic suffering. It could just be comfort, <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, a lot. It's, it's about putting other people first. I think that's what that's what, you know, uh, a, a true martyr is. And and I think that this is somebody who can be celebrated but also at this time right now uh in America and in Iran certainly. You know, the the the, the sort of very easy um way that Iranians uh especially the government has of just simply demonizing Americans and Christians for that matter uh and yet having to come to terms with this American Christian who was a hero. And by the way, mm. this book is being translated into Persian. It'll be uh, oh, available great. as a PDF for free for anyone uh, in Iran to download. 
uh, for free because I want to make oh, sure that's that, fantastic. that they're I'm challenged so glad. in the same way that Americans are. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it out to all the Persian Baha'i friends to. Yeah, and this will be you could probably be arrested in Iran like a year from now for owning this book. <laughs> you know? it's, it's possible. It's funny. Uh, possible. Uh, I had like I have this film crew in Iran doing some filming for me, and they and you know they ori- originally got a permit very, very easily to do this because they said, yeah, we're doing a, a, a little, you know, video thing on Persian constitutional revolution and and the and Howard Baskerville's role in it. And the government was like, fine, that sounds great. Then they started filming and asking questions. And the more they started asking about Baskerville in particular, this American Christian missionary, people started to tense up a little bit. And on the third day, they got their permit revoked. <laughs> Mm. Just surprise, yep. your permit is revoked. Because I guess they were just talking too much about America. And again, I think that's what I that's what I want to change. I want to make sure that both Americans and Iranians remember this name, Howard Baskerville, and that that name is a symbol of everything that these two cultures, these two peoples actually hold in common with each other. It can be a bridge uh, between these two great cultures. And I'm, I'm reminded of, people reference it all the time, but um, the Anthony Bourdain episode in Iran, mm-hmm. where he uh, travels around and eats food, and there's some American journalists there, which are subsequently arrested right after shooting the episode with him. Yeah, Jason But Rezaian. just shows yeah. the incredible humanity of Iran. Uh, people are just so loving and warm and hospitable and funny and goofy and um, it's a, it's a really glorious culture with, uh, the most amazing food you've never had. Um, well, I wish you the very best with this book, Reza, but, um, and I was going to segue into something like, so what do you think? What would you die for <laughs> listeners, metaphysical listeners? And we would love to hear from you. We'd like to make this as our, our last gasp, at least for a while. We would love to hear from you on our social media at metaphysical milkshake on Instagram, you can write us at, at metaphysical at castmedia.com. You can find us on our socials, Ray, at Rain Wilson, at Reza Aslan. Are we going to give some of these away? We are. We are. How's that going to work? How's that going to work? Pretty simple. First five people to write a review of Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts. All you got to do is email a screenshot of the review to metaphysical at castmedia.com, and we'll send you a copy of the book. But... If you're not one of those five people, listen, you could still get the book. It just costs a little bit of money. That's all, you know? How much are we talking about here? <laughs> How much is this bad boy sitting back? I think the, the hardcover is like 30 bucks, but I think the uh, Kindle cover or the now, Audible. Now, are you reading it? Or did yeah. you read it on the Audible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could uh, get the Audible and hear me. You should have had me read it. Read it to you in a very dramatic I could have read it for you. Uh, I could have read it but for you. you know, it's hard. Like I was looking at, I was looking at the um, the non. One can forgive Howard Baskerville for being lost in such thoughts. <laughs> the past six months have been a whirlwind oh, of highs that's, and lows. Yeah, that's not bad. The fall felt like a dream. The thing is, okay. is I can't afford Rain Wilson. That's my problem. You cannot. I was just going to say that. Uh, just one last appeal here is that I was looking at the nonfiction bestseller list, and Uh-oh. it's all Trump. It's either books about Trump. It's either Trump adjacent books. It's or like books that are like, you know, not about Trump, but sort of about Trump, like a biography of Lincoln and, or, you know, or like 
how not Lincoln, to be an the asshole. anti-Trump. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so you know, it's hard. It's hard when you've got a book like this to to get a lot of attention. So thank you. When does Red it come Wilson. out? What's what's the first week that it comes out? October. It comes out October 11th. Wow. So yeah, so hitting the bestseller list would be helpful and you can help Metaphysical Milkshakers. Please, uh, this episode drops on October 11th. So when you hear this, these, especially these several days after this podcast drops, the 11th through the 18th or so, like get out there, buy several of these. This is a great stocking stuffer. This is the week to buy it. Help Reza get his book up on that bestseller list. Thank you, everyone. Reza, I don't want to say like goodbye, <sighs> yeah. but um, I'm first of all, I'm really congratulations on the book, and I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation as the as the temporary, I hope, sign off of uh, this first long seventy plus episode chapter of Metaphysical Milkshake. But uh, you, what an honor and a thrill to be having these conversations with you over the last several years. I mean, it's it's enriched my life so much. I've learned so much. I've thought so much. We, we've, we, we've got to speak to some absolutely incredible, yeah. incredible human beings. And I want to thank everyone who's been listening and we've gained a really kind of loyal, uh, wonderful audience. And uh, just thank you so much for supporting kind of, kind of uplifting, important, elevated conversations about big ideas. Thank you for being a part of this. We couldn't have done it without you. Hopefully we get to keep going. Yeah, this has been a, a truly fantastic experience. Um, and, you know, I mean, we were friends before, but I feel like we've gotten very close in these conversations. And, uh, Indeed. And it's been, it's just been wonderful. And thank you, Milkshakers, for for being on this, I guess, now three-year journey <laughs> with us. Uh. And, uh, you know, we love you. We love these ideas. and uh, And hopefully we'll be back. I hope so, too. Uh, Milkshakers, you guys are the best. We love you so much. Reza, congrats on the book. Pick it up. An American Martyr in Persia. Blah, 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 blah by Reza Aslan. Pick that up late September, early October. Thanks for listening. Hopefully we see you again. Tell all your friends to listen to our 70 to 80 plus episodes. Um, We would love to have these ideas shared by everyone. Thank you so much. Signing off. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. Chalamet, people don't know this, big fan of the Metaphysical Milkshake. Yeah, uh, so, loves the milkshake. So Timothy, if you happen to be listening, uh, you know, I think you'd make a great basketball. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.